Guys, I got a real problem with this movie. I know it's this big superhero spectacle and everything, but do we have to have another stereotypical, unbelievably hot anthropologist slash archaeologist? Well, at least this one cared about provenance and who was taking possession of an artifact. Oh, you know what? Good point. Is this the most accurate archaeological film of all time? I mean, it's just an inevitability that all the most attractive, smartest, and most supernaturally physically capable trickle into anthropology. You know what? I've changed my mind. I love this movie. fantasy fans and welcome to swords and satire the podcast will return low fantasy into high art i'm your dungeon manager jamie mokul here with my wonderful co-hosts wonderful i'm chelsea hollowell a hottie in disguise wearing glasses and with their hair up so you can't tell that i'm a hottie oh oh my god i i never noticed before <laughs> but now that you've taken off those glasses and let your hair down it really shows <laughs> yeah when you guys bumped into each other and dropped your papers and started picking them up at the same time i, I it really just showed things from a different perspective <laughs> <laughs> and uh and i'm jack olander a parent who thinks that weapons of mass destruction will impress my children i mean something's got to right Mm-hmm. they won't love you unless you're dangerous <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say, that's the only way you earn their love. <laughs> mm -hmm. Foreign leaders must fear me for my child to love me. <laughs> my God. Well, you can probably tell already that this week we watched Wonder Woman. The most current film we've ever done on the show. This was a 2020 release. Yeah, specifically Wonder Woman 1984. Oh, wait, this wasn't the original? I'm so confused because it started with, like, an origin story of Diana as a child. I know. You know, like that movie we watched years ago called Wonder Woman. It seems like they wanted a reboot in the 1980s just so they could have a movie uh, set in the 1980s. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was born in 1983, so, like, yeah, I'm cool with it. See, this movie is a better year than that because it's 1984, and that's the year I was born. Oh, brutal. <laughs> you know, personally, I, I think Wonder Woman 98 could have been pretty <laughs> neat. Well, we'll see. We'll that, get that eventually. Now, number three did just get approved. It could be Wonder Woman 1998. Could be. If it's not 98, are you going to protest and, and uh, strike against the movie? I'll scream and cry and piss and shit my pants. <laughs> the question I still want to know is, where's Bruce Wayne in all this? I know. Okay, but I think we're getting ahead of ourselves. Um, let's get some technical specs out of the way. Wonder Woman 1984 was directed by Patty Jenkins. It was written by Jenkins, Jeff Johns, and Dave Callaham. And it stars Gal Gadot, Chris Pine, Kristen Wiig, Pedro Pascal, Robin Wright, and Connie Nielsen. Mando! 
That would be uh, Pedro. Yeah. Pedro the Mando. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Playing a rather different character than his uh, titular Mando. I know. I was so conflicted. <laughs> because I love his face, but then he was playing this guy. <laughs> <laughs> and it's really hard not to hate his face in this movie. I know. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's get into it, though. Let's tell people why they should hate his face, because I think... <laughs> Because I think Chelsea has a summary ready to go for you. Pretty much. Okay, here's your summary for Wonder Woman 1984. So this is a movie about grief, friendship, and the truth. The truth is... that you should not want anything more than what you have. <laughs> yeah. And... It's also about the repercussions of what could happen if you run away from the challenges and problems in your life and look for the easy and fast answers rather than working to find solutions to your problems or working through your grief. Now, if the characters had paid attention to 1980s pop music, they would have known that there is no easy way out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think there was an 80s song. It's from Rocky. So One of the Rockies. The whole, the whole plot centers around finding this wishing stone. And the three there are three main characters that are kind of all drawn into the web of this stone. It's kind of like a monkey's paw. Which they say in the movie, specifically. I believe Chris Pine calls it a monkey's paw. Yeah, and Jamie called it before they actually just, like, spelled it out for you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, sure, but, like, I'm a stupid online movie critic, and Chris Pine is a character in this movie. <laughs> well, sure. In a metaphysical sense, Chris Pine essentially could have just read the Wikipedia definition <laughs> of monkey's paw in that scene. <laughs> yeah, that would have pretty yeah, much pretty done the much. job. Yeah, that's basically how the line was delivered. What if they just totally fucked up the like the timeline completely and like he's like, but that's going to be a plot in The Simpsons <laughs> in about 10 years in a beloved uh, Halloween episode of The Simpsons. Yeah, and it was like the the backup film crew, whatever the, I, I can't remember what you call it. Is it the second unit? Yeah. The second unit film crew, and they, 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 it was a long day, and they just didn't catch that line. And it, <laughs> yeah, that's just Chris Pine trolling them. <laughs> the editor was like, I guess that's supposed to be in there. Maybe it was improv. Yeah. Oh, it is like a monkey's paw. <laughs> okay, we're, we're digressing, but we're just like doing a bit here. Um, that was not actually in the movie. <laughs> I mean, the part where he says it's like a monkey's paw was absolutely in the movie. Totally. Uh, so the part that, where he riffed his own movie. So <laughs> that means that you can make a wish, but it's going to have it. There's a trick to it. It's going to have repercussions. There's going to be a price to pay for your wish. Magic comes with a price, dearie. Exactly. So the characters that get caught in this web are Diana, Wonder Woman. A new friend she makes at the Smithsonian where she works named Barbara Minerva. Oh, I love friends. <laughs> yeah. Do they stay friends the whole movie? Kind of. <laughs> okay. That's the one way to look at it. They just have, like, a fight. <laughs> sure. I mean, sometimes friends get into little spats where they uh, try to drown each other in a pool of electricity. 
Yeah. It's kind of a tale as old as time. Yeah. And then Mr. Maxwell Lord, who's played by Pedro Pascal, and uh, Barbara is played by Kristen Wiig. So, Diana... Wonder uh, Woman. Now, you don't... I should put a caveat in here. It's clear that you don't even have to say aloud in the beginning what your wish is, because Diana never says hers out loud. She's just thinking what she wishes while she's holding the stone. You have to be touching the stone and then make your wish. Everybody else says theirs out loud, and that seems to be the general rule, and it's the rule that's consistent throughout the rest of the movie, but for some reason she didn't have to. I'm gonna just be, I'm gonna come clean here and just say I didn't get that she had brought Chris Pine back, or Steve, as his character is named in the movie, until like halfway through the film when something made me realize like, oh, she wished for him to be back. Well, see, I knew that's what her wish was going to be because like they spoiled it in the preview or, or the trailer. They showed him being back with her. And then I play this really stupid like color game where on the tablet and they have like coloring pictures for this movie that were like a special promotion and it showed the two characters together. So I think I spelled it that way for myself too. Hey, stupid coloring game that Chelsea plays on our tablet. If you want to sponsor the show, hit us up. (laughs) We'll stop calling you stupid. (laughs) I don't even remember the name of it. (laughs) But, um, so yeah, her, her wish is to bring Steve back because it's been about 80 years since he died in the narrative and she is you know still grieving it's been a long time she's never gotten over him she hasn't wow, been that's able really to... sad when you think of the time love time frame i mean for her it's kind of like a blip in time she lives so long yeah but she still experiences time in roughly the same like proportions that we all do that's true so it's it's really sad she's she was uh really hurt by his death and never really got over it. And so she wishes for him to come back. He and he does. Movie over, happy ending. <laughs> he does, but he's like basically possessing some other dude's body. And they have that actor playing a few scenes and then they have um, Chris Pine playing it the rest of the time because it's like Diana can see through to his soul I don't know. Something like that. Well, he, like, says the last thing that he ever said to her or something. Yeah. Or the first thing he ever said to her or something like that. The last thing. And he gives her the watch and he places it in her hand, just like the scene in the other movie, and, like, proves to her that he is who he is. Anyway, Barbara doesn't know that Diana is Wonder Woman. She just sees that Diana is beautiful and gets attention from people, and has the respect of her colleagues. Like every cultural anthropologist slash archaeologist, of course. Sure, we'll say that. And so Barbara just wishes to be like Diana. And she starts to develop the superpowers that Diana has, and it kind of builds slowly over time. And uh, so she she says later to Diana, I wish to be more like you, and it came with a few surprises. (laughs) Like, the ability to turn into a cat person? Well, that was later. Sure, but, like, eventually over time. Yeah. But that was because 
Okay, we should get to Maxwell Lord because the reason she turns into Cheetah later is because of him. So Maxwell Lord He's is... He's a real 1980s businessman type, if you know what I mean. Yeah. And apparently he's not based on Donald Trump, but he's basically based on Donald Trump. I don't know. Maxwell Lord has, like, a uh, redeemable ending. That's true. He's attempting to be an oil tycoon, but all of his wells have run dry. Apparently he's been hunting the Wishing Stone for many years. How did he find out about it? Who cares? No time in this two-and-a-half-hour movie. We need to know about how Diana learned to be truthful as a kid. Uh, and we need a fashion show uh, th of Steve parading around in different outfits while Diana judges them. Well, I mean, we need that, yes. <laughs> I mean, that's that's a given. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so, Chelsea didn't like that scene. I adored it. So, Max... Uh, it, it, Mr. Maxwell Lord, he goes by Max. He already knew what he wanted, and he wished to become the Wishing Stone. And it flew into dust, and the power from the stone went into him. Yeah. And so he would get people to hold his hand and make a wish. And because it has that trick or monkey's paw aspect, anytime somebody made a wish he was able to take something from them in return and name whatever he wanted of theirs. And it would, the magic would draw that to him or give him the ability. And so eventually his health is failing. He can't handle the magic of the stone and he eventually builds his way up. We can get into the more of the details later, but he builds his way up to gaining enough influence and power over people to where he can gain access to this cutting-edge satellite system that basically allows him to touch everyone in the world and gets them to make wishes all at the same time. It's using this newfangled thing that they just invented at this time called molecules. <laughs> yeah. And they make wishes. He's taking things from them like uh, health, wealth, and power, influence, and... He gives some of that power to Barbara because she's been protecting him from Wonder Woman, who's been trying to stop him the entire movie. And she becomes this cheetah woman. So he's able to give the consequence to other people, it seems, which is strange. It doesn't seem like it works that way any other time except for right then. Well, I, guess, well, I mean, no, he's becoming the stone. So I guess he's choosing the conditions of how they get monkeys pod yeah but it also seems like the more wishes he granted the stronger he was getting but also the physically weaker he was getting as it was like giving him some kind of like terminal illness i guess or something like he, he wasn't he wasn't looking good the cost that wonder woman was paying was her powers were dwindling and she was becoming more like a mortal. And so eventually to be able to go up against Barbara and Max, she had to renounce her wish. And she could just say that out loud and it was done. And she had all of her powers back. The monkey's paw is not a total dick. It's like, hey, I'll give you the get out of jail free card. You're just not going to want to take it. Right. And after that, she could fly. And... um. <laughs> <laughs> she 
she goes and faces off against the two of them. She has an epic battle with Barbara, who's now a cheetah woman. And she does eventually get her into the water and there's a, like an open wire with electricity running through it and she electrocutes her under the water. It doesn't kill Barbara because she's kind of like a powered being at that point. Um, and for some reason, it also doesn't affect Diana. Yeah, she's completely unaffected by the lightning or the electricity. Her dad is Zeus. That's true. Okay. God of lightning. Maybe he infused her with some resistance. Yeah, after he came on a uh, statue of a carved Diana or something. Jesus. Yes. So No, no, Zeus. Zeus. (laughs) Yeah, he did some weird kinky Zeus shit and Diana was born. So she doesn't leave Barbara down there under the water. She brings her back out. (laughs) Damn, that would be sad. That would be very un-Wonder Woman- yeah, she she sets her down. It's like, well, she faces off. There you again. go, back to the ocean with you, back to my uncle Poseidon. Yeah, she faces off against Max by getting her lasso of truth around his ankle and speaking to everyone in the worth in the world through the satellite. It, it's confusing, guys. It it doesn't totally make sense, but somehow she's able to speak to everyone in the world. And tells them to renounce all of their wishes to go back to the way things were. And we have problems with the messaging there. We'll get into that later. And then she, the, the lasso of truth shows Max his son, Alistair, in danger. And he actually does care about his kid. and Which has not been established at all up to this point. Oh, uh, vaguely only. And so... Alistair, he eventually renounces his wish so he can go save his son, and they have a reconciliation moment. Barely earned a reconciliation. Yeah. Hey, guys, the most unbelievable part of this whole movie is the fact that when Max is, like, telling people that they can wish for whatever they want, nobody in the world said, I wish this guy would shut the fuck up. Because he takes over everybody's TV set at the same time and radio. Yeah. So, like, all of a sudden, you're sitting there watching, I don't know, Cheers? It's 1984. Would it be Cheers? And then this dumbass Donald Trump-looking motherfucker shows up on your TV saying, Hey, tell me what you wish for. Yeah, I wish you'd go fuck yourself. That would be interesting. (laughs) And then, I mean, Max has got to do it, right? Because he's granting every wish. He would have to. He would be compelled. have to do it. (laughs) You know, there's just that one really angry person in a bar that's like, I wish you'd fucking explode. (laughs) I wish you'd blow up right now. It's like right in the middle of the baseball game when they, like, I don't, if I knew baseball players, but like, you know, about to hit that home run, this guy's team in, like, fucking Boston Red Sox or something. And then this guy comes on. (laughs) (laughs) I wish this fucker would go die. (laughs) (laughs) What happens then? Does everybody have to just live with their monkey's paw wish? Oh. Well, I guess we'll never find out until we write Wonder Woman 1985. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Chelsea, that was an outstanding summary. Why don't we head into the delve? Welcome to the delve, where we venture deep into the themes, scenes, and lore of Wonder Woman 1984. 
hey, that kind of rhymed. <laughs> All right, guys, so we've covered the most important thing that this movie's unbelievable because nobody wished for Maxwell Lord to shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what else is there to say about I, the movie? <laughs> I swear, somebody that watched that would have said, I wish you would go fucking die. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Interrupting TV in the 80s? There's somebody out there that would fucking say that. <laughs> there, is Scream not, it. there is no reality that we understand where that wouldn't happen. <laughs> so this 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 does touch on an issue that we had with the movie. And yes, of course, we understand that <sighs> films are about lessons and big stories and everything. Yeah, there's the themes and the messages that they're trying to get across. So, like, the metaphor doesn't always, like, 100% reflect reality. They, what they can go for is verisimilitude, which is making it like reality or a, like a mirror to reality. Right. But, but it's not 100% one for one. Yeah, I mean, where my suspension of disbelief actually collapsed was when Diana was able to get everyone to be like, to see how terrible this person was and then go, oh, you know what? We renounce, like, we. I just got exactly what I wanted, but I renounce it immediately because i understand the consequences it's like if 2020 taught us nothing else it's that people do not care about consequences they will keep doing the thing that they want to do in spite of the consequences they don't of want doing it anyone you know what it would be is the rest of the world would renounce and americans would refuse <laughs> <laughs> Or at least a portion of them. I mean, I think everybody would refuse to renounce if they literally just got the one. I mean, maybe some people would be like, oh, what I just got was, you know, not really what I wanted. But here's the other problem. How does the stone work then? I, I guess it's because you don't always, like, before Max Lord was able to, like, amplify the power, it wasn't happening so quickly. And when he, like, became the stone and got supercharged, he started making the wishes manifest instantaneously. And Whereas, like you were saying, Chelsea, Barbara doesn't start, doesn't just instantly become Wonder Woman's equal. It's, like, over a week or a month or something that she builds up the power. Or yeah. a few days, at least. And it seems like, from what I could tell, from all the documents that Barbara and Diana were able to amass together because they were friends and they were working together against Max for part of the movie. Barbara was helping Diana research the stone throughout history and from everything that she found it doesn't seem like anybody ever wished to become the stone. <laughs> it doesn't seem like that problem had ever arisen before. I guess not, yeah, because the stone still existed. Yeah. And, and Jack had brought up, I think, earlier that the stone is um, the artifact of a greek god of chaos i think yes god of lies god of lies yeah that's what they talked about in the movie and then they said that he is a god that's known to many cultures and has many different names this is the part where we have to add the note that none of us are really terribly familiar with the wonder woman series other than like these movies yeah but i i just want to go back to this scene real quick where it's near the end when she's talking to everybody and Jamie mentioned that she gets everybody to renounce their gift, wish. And the way she talks about it and the way it's been formulated throughout the rest of the movie is that 
truth is the only thing that matters. The truth is bigger than all of us. And she repeats that later, too. And it's kind of like insinuating that getting what you want through a wish is taking the fast road or the easy way out and it doesn't mean as much or it's almost like a lie because you didn't have to work for it. Yeah, I took a lot of issue with that uh, message slash like thematic disconnect too. And if it's almost like it comes from this uh, myth of scarcity that there's only so many resources to go around and you can't care for everybody. And that's a capitalist myth. And it seems to be feeding off of that in the way that it communicates that, oh, if everyone had their wish granted, then it would be chaos. Yeah, the world would be chaos. And it's just like, no, maybe people should be able to get what they want and need in life and should have all of their needs taken care of, you know? Yeah, I mean, because we know that the the Dreamstone can literally create through magical means. Like, it turned Max Lord's, like oil wells that didn't have any oil into them into rich oil veins. So the paw or the monkey's paw, the dreamstone could just manifest whatever it needs to provide for everybody. But you know, it's a product of a God of lies. So it doesn't, but it just seems like a weird extra step. Yeah. And like, again, the messaging of the movie feels weird to like have the antonym of truth be getting something effortlessly yeah like those aren't opposites in my mind no yeah it seemed a lot like they were kind of taking the common phrase sweet lies and ugly truths but making it more into like bittersweet lies and profoundly beautiful truths <laughs> <laughs> okay yeah yeah yeah, I think you could be onto something like maybe they weren't aware of the implications of their messaging. And and with the way the movie was executed, I wouldn't be surprised if that were the case. Yeah, it's a, but, it's a bit messy. Yeah. But those are those implications are there to be read in the text. And it's a startling and disquieting implication of it, people shouldn't have things just handed to them. It's not as valuable if you don't work hard for it and like pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And that it goes along with the capitalist mentality that there are certain things that are privileges, not rights. Like having a place to call home, like having housing and food and water and all of your other basic needs met, which should be a, a right. Right. And it doesn't seem like this movie, it seems like they have a lot of unquestioned assumptions, which is what I think you were kind of insinuating, Jack, with your comment. Like, they, they have a lot of unquestioned assumptions in the script and the messages that they're communicating. Definitely. There were a lot of mixed messages in what they were trying to say. It was, I think, most clearly put as, like, you get what you wanted, but you lost what you had. 
And the, you know, the main message of the movie is that reality, the truth that you live in, is actually better than what you hope to gain, right? With your eyes on your own greed, you're missing out on what you already have. Yeah, I mean, Diana kind of susses out that the stone gives you what you wish for, but takes away the thing that is most important to you. So for Diana, that is her physical strength and superpowers. For Barbara, it is her kindness and uh, like compassion for other humans. For Max, it's his son, question mark. But again, like his health, I guess his health. Yeah. But like, so he's losing two things then. Like, it's just really uneven. And, and again, like, they don't establish very well that Max is supposed to be this loving, doting father. Like, his son shows up at the beginning of the movie and his assistant's just like, oh, yeah, and, like, it's your day with your son. And Max seems kind of put out by it. It's like, well, I'm not going to have a lot of sympathy for this, like, absentee father who cares more about his wealth than his children. That's not relatable to me, at least. Right. Yeah, I think the health thing was actually an affliction of being the power stone. I was thinking there was something like that, too. And I think the downside of the wish was alienating his son, Alistair. But he like, was doing he was that on his own. But yeah. yeah, exactly. He was already alienating his son. So, like, I, so here was what I was saying to Chelsea after we watched the movie. There's like this whole... 10-minute intro of Diana as a young child running this marathon where she has to learn the lesson that taking a shortcut is dishonest, which I think is overblown and overstated throughout the movie, but yeah, that's neither it, it here nor there. Yeah, it kind of depends on the situation. It's not a hard and fast rule. Exactly, but like they really drill it home at the beginning of this film, and I think they do that idea a disservice because Diana was being clever, in my opinion. Yeah. She was then, being a clever problem solver. Yeah, exactly. And she's a kid. She was being like, she was thinking outside of the box. Like, that's, I, that should be encouraged. Mm -hmm. I don't know if this movie uh, supports that idea. But so then the the follow-up, my, my follow-up point is that later on in the movie, at the very end, when we're supposed to be uh, watching Max learning that he wants to renounce his power, we get this quick set of flashbacks of him as a child in, in an abused household with an abused mother and an abusive father or, or father figure. We see him, like, starting his business and, like, being proud. Like, it, you get this idea of, like, okay, he's worked hard. He's pulled himself up, not by his bootstraps, which is impossible. He has fought against adversity and, like, made a business for himself to get out of the cycle of poverty. And like, ostensibly we are also supposed to believe that this is the moment when he like realizes that his child is more important to him. Why wasn't that the beginning of the movie? Why didn't we see that anytime before the very end when we've already just felt like the whole time Max is just a huge shithead. I know to your point at the end is when they tried to turn him into a sympathetic villain. And if it they wanted earned. to go, yeah, if they wanted to go for that, that should have been, you're right, Jimmy, that should have been the beginning of the movie is seeing his backstory through like flashbacks or something that like showing him thinking about these things. Yeah, because we've already gotten like the or the first movie has Diana as a child. It was kind of weird to, to go back to that. Not like you can't do that. Like you can do that. But then. The whole message about like cheating is a shortcut that you should never do or whatever. It's like, yeah, but also 
it just I don't know. I I I wasn't convinced by the messaging that this lesson that Diana learned from this marathon was what made her see that using magic to wish for something is like bad. And also Diana's literally like an Amazonian who does have physical powers that other humans do not have. And it is like already privileged in so many ways. And then for her to be like, Hey, but all you other normals out there, like stay in your fucking lanes. That is the implication of the messaging at the end. And I doubt that was intentional. I don't think it was, but like I said, it's there to be read in the text. And it kind of seems like she's telling them, you shouldn't wish for more. Just in the way she says it, the simplistic way she says it, she doesn't like explain like they should fight for like a better life or or work together for a better life. She just says, like, they shouldn't make wishes like that and that they should be happy with the lives that they have. It's like, wait a minute. Yeah. (laughs) There are so many situations where the haves intentionally keep all these resources away from the have-nots just so they can hoard their wealth. Which the movie literally shows with, like, the Egyptian prince. Yeah. And... There are a lot of injustices in the world that she should be fighting against as a character, and there's in no way does it like address that at all. Yeah, I think when it comes to the sort of privilege aspect of her stance at the end, it's a little more valuable when you contextualize it with what she's been going through. We touched on it a little bit earlier for why she wishes for love and why it's hard for her to renounce that wish when we are mentioning how she had been without Steve for over 60 years. Right. Yeah. And we were talking about how he never, or rather how she never got over him, but it's kind of more than that. She kind of shut herself off completely aside from her friend. That was Steve's secretary who Diana watched grow old and pass away. She's been a very closed off person. And when she's talking to Barbara, when they're out to dinner one time, she's talking about how she's actually a very lonely person because she can't connect to people in the same way. You know what? I'm so glad you said that because I I just I'll qualify this. But the fact that she went into cultural anthropology as somebody who has shut herself off from other people's feelings is fucking wild to me. Yeah. She must have studied under some of like the like 1910s and 1920s uh, like anthropologists who were like, yeah, I just go out into the field and don't care about anything except for like collecting the data because like it's a human centric field. It's the preservation era of anthropology. Sure, but, like, she's going into the 1980s. Like, has she not, like, gotten into this whole new thing from, like, the 60s and everything of, like, inserting yourself into a culture and, like, being a part of that culture and, like, getting to know people? yeah. Yeah, but, like, also getting to know people and, like, being open with them and, like, having, like, reciprocal relationships. It's it's wild that she's like this isolated person who just happens to be studying a a very people centric science. Yeah. 
Well, she still seemed very friendly, despite not being able to connect to people. Sure, She seemed to be likable and to like people. I'm not saying it's impossible. Just, like, it is a funny connection. Also, it's something she's trained to already be kind of good at, or at least have knowledge about, being raised in the Mascara. In the first movie, it was established that she speaks, like, over a hundred languages. Yeah, I mean, a fish out of water is a good, like, role for an anthropologist in some regards. Yeah, definitely. But she's also an archaeologist, and you know what they say. I won't say. Uh, Archaeologists love beer? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Or, uh, they say, uh, anthropology is the extroverted, uh, archaeology. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So, if you're not feeling down to talk to people, look at pottery instead, you know? (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, maybe I'm just going too far with this, like, comparison, but it was just kind of funny to me when you said, when you, when you brought that up, Mm -hmm. Jack, that, like, wait a minute, she's studying, or... Her field is something that is very much for extroverted people. Yeah, it's true. It's true. And again, like you said, she's not cut off from people necessarily, but she is kind of Mm -hmm. like she has kind of made herself emotionally unavailable, it seems. Yeah, she's effectively been living as a heartbroken hermit for like an entire human lifespan. Yeah, what a a sad uh, existence she has in that probably what, like $4,000 apartment in D.C.? Yeah. Yeah. She probably owns it. I mean, yeah, definitely. (laughs) Guys, before we talk too much more about the movie, why don't we head to the bounty board? You feel the cool citrine stone in your hand, and you consider... What would be the perfect wish? What is it that you want more than anything else? Is it fame, money, power? What could it be? What could you possibly want beyond all other wants? But before your conscious mind can stop you, the first word that comes to your lips is bounties. This week, Swords and Satire is sponsored in part by Audible the leading provider of audiobooks and spoken word entertainment. And if you want a suggestion for a series to start your Audible collection with, might I suggest The Iron Druid Chronicles by Kevin Hearn? All three of the satirists love these audiobooks. They're about a millennia-old druid named Atticus O'Sullivan who lives in Tempe, Arizona, and goes around solving people's problems gardening, fighting gods and demons, and basically doing all kinds of other stuff that you would think that a modern-day druid would do. These are really entertaining fantasy books with some interesting world-building, great lore, really lovable characters, and, spoilers, eventually there's a talking dog. So why don't you go on over to Audible right now and uh, check out the Iron Druid Chronicles. That's what we suggest. But Audible isn't just a great source of audiobooks. Oh, no. They have podcasts, like ours, comedy, original content, and more. There's something on Audible for everybody. It's also super convenient. You can download titles to your device so you can listen offline, which is really good for me because I'm often listening while working in the yard and my Wi-Fi sucks. And you can also listen across multiple devices without losing your place 
which is also helpful for me because I have a bunch of different places I listen to Audible from. So head over to audibletrial.com slash swords right now to start your free 30-day trial. Get a credit for a free audio book of your choice that you get to keep even if you cancel your membership. Not that you're going to want to. You'll also get an exclusive wellness guide and an email reminder before your trial ends. And after that, it's just $14.95 a month, and you get a credit for an audiobook every month. When you sign up for your free trial, you also help us keep the torches lit at Castle Satire. So once again, that's audibletrial.com slash swords. And now, back to the episode. So, guys, I want to talk about um, a character that I think deserved more in this movie, and that is Barbara. Yeah. So I, I really like uh, Wonder Woman as a character. In the first movie, like I, I really liked Diana's character. I thought she was really interesting. I was actually brought to tears in the theater when we were seeing the original Wonder Woman in the scene where she's like, fighting through no man's land like i cared about her yeah. in this movie i thought that she was fine okay max i think of the dickhead until the end and then suddenly we're supposed to care for him but barbara i think is the unsung hero of this movie she was so interesting to me like the whole time she's this compassionate caring person who i think is really relatable she feels unseen, uncared for. She's you know, never the person that people seem to be interested in, like socially or at all. She's kind of like disrespected by her coworkers, yeah. but she maintains like a, a positive attitude, like a, a an upbeat persona. And friendly demeanor. A friendly demeanor. We find out that she has like a, a homeless friend in the park, who she feeds. Yeah. Like, she cares about people. Right. And so she goes through this arc where she wishes to become more like Diana. She gets physically powerful and people start paying attention to her and it starts changing her for the worse. I think that's the most interesting story arc in this whole film. They do the whole thing where they have her go through a transformation that's reinforcing narrative. yeah that reinforces stereotypical female beauty where she kind of takes her glasses off lets down her hair takes off her jean skirt and just has her leggings in fashionable uh shirt for the time with one shoulder showing and it's like oh suddenly everybody cares about her so at first i was like oh this is ridiculous and then i thought wait a minute like they're setting this movie in the 80s they know what they're doing. Like, that was... I hope so. That has to be a trope that they were just hanging a lampshade on. Like, it, it was... It's too pointed, right? Like, hey, here's our movie in the 80s, and this cute girl just needs to take her hair down and take her glasses off. But like, there's nothing in the text that shows us that they know what they were doing. Sure, that's fair. I mean, I'm and, not saying it was done well. And all the other messages have all these unexamined assumptions in them and so the implications for those messages and what they communicate is very muddled absolutely and so i am not convinced that they 
we're doing anything like that intentionally or with like a nod to any trope. Ooh, brutal. Yeah, I think her character was very interesting because it was Cheetah, right? Right. One of Wonder Woman's most well-known adversaries. Of course, she has a lot of personality to work with that's already been established for quite some time. So... As a fleshed-out character, uh, a lot of material exists to make that character work. Maxwell? I had not heard of him before. Maybe he existed as a Wonder Woman villain or a villain in general, but he wasn't very complex until the end, like we said. Cheetah really was more of a much more interesting character, like you said, and they really could have kind of leaned into that rivalry and use the Dreamstone more as like a framing mechanism or something for them to fight over. And they did, but it was more of a side thing. You're right. Barbara definitely, they skimmed her for time. Yeah. Like I just feel like she has this feeling of powerlessness. And when she is given a means to transcend that, she takes it in a negative direction. But I think, again, that that's pretty relatable. Like, people who have been through traumatic experiences or, you know, other hard, other hardships sometimes, you know, don't react well when they are given a taste of power that transcends that. And I think that they handled that pretty well in the character who... She doesn't seem like she has become so cruel that she, that it is not lost on her what's happening. Like, Diana implores her, and Barbara seems to have this moment of, like, I know what you're telling me is true, but this power just feels so good that I'm going to push it down and not listen to you. But yeah. she does seem to have this moment of conscience where she knows that what she's doing is wrong. Yeah, so there's the scene where Maxwell, he's standing on the projector, being shown directly to everyone in the world at once, essentially. Yeah. And in an instant, the tides of the battle switch as the lasso of truth is wrapped around his ankle. And they establish in the film, oh, the lasso doesn't just make you tell the truth, it reveals the truth, yeah. right? Yeah. And so the light of the lasso is suddenly not only showing the truth to Maxwell, but projecting the truth to everyone in the world, right? Oh, I guess so. I mean, normally it has to be touching you, but somehow they made it kind of work with the satellite thing. Oh, is that it? That, like, because she had put the lasso around his ankle and he was touching everybody through the molecules, <laughs> that that means everybody had to, like, tell the truth and that their truth was that they realized that their wish was bad it did show yeah. them all kind of realizing something in the way that people portrayed it on their faces i guess i missed that Jack. <laughs> okay I, yeah I, I totally missed that i think you're right yeah because yeah the molecules coming out of the uh coming out of the satellite <laughs> yeah. you can see on every screen it because it starts glowing golden yeah. It's just, yeah. Yeah, okay yeah. okay i i so i mean that's great and i don't need a movie to force feed me the answers that's fine but i don't think i would have ever come to that conclusion based on the text of the movie without you saying it right now and that's oh, genius okay. i mean I that's really good but i think that the movie does not establish <laughs> that well enough in 
what the movie does. Yeah, because right. before that, there's no way that the lasso of truth works any way, shape, or form like that. They yeah. didn't establish it in a smaller context to give us any kind of idea that that might be what was going on. Yeah, I mean, we right. thought that the lasso of truth was just like a really allow or a really shiny web shooter for uh, Wonder Woman to <laughs> Spider Man around the city, right? Yes, this is in the Spider Verse, definitely. <laughs> That's what you were pointing out while we were watching it, Jack. Yes, we're all in a Spider Verse. Yeah, but, uh... they were using those like their whips, like basically like spider-man's web slinging ability yeah and she was even using the whip on lightning <laughs> yeah mm. yeah but uh there's some really serious messaging when it comes to the whip revealing the truth to everyone in the world uh it could be seen as the whip is showing everyone like oh your wishes are actually fucking you up right it's actually a really negative thing right it could be but that's not the case, necessarily. It seems to give people the understanding that that's what's happening. But we see what it's showing Maxwell, the main villain. Yeah. It's right. showing us his backstory, right? Where he's a kid and his parents are fighting, abusing each other. He's being bullied in school. He's yeah. rising out of poverty. And it's showing basically that he had a hard life and he started doing questionable things to get out of that life, right? To get out of that cycle. That's revealed to him. It's showing him kind of how he got to where he is. Yeah. And assumedly, the whip is giving him some sort of understanding that it's not good what he's become, right? And so using that information, we are to infer that it is showing similar imagery to everyone else in the world, pointing out how they got to where they are now and pointing out why what they've wished for is actually harming them, right? Okay, yes. I, I, I see exactly what you're saying. But the thing is, is the movie is saying that there is a real truth in the world, right? There is truth. Objective truth. Objective truth. And that once revealed to you, you will agree with it. Like right. the fact the whip gives not only like it doesn't just reveal, it gives understanding of the objective <laughs> truth. Yeah. And I don't think it's ever portrayed that way at any other point because Diana lassos Maxwell, right? With the la with the with the lasso of truth earlier in the film. And he doesn't like go like, oh my god, I I totally like have been wrong this whole time. Right. Yeah, I don't think she put the uh, the truth into him, the pumping in that scene. <laughs> she started getting shot at real quick. I okay. like your point about how they just assume that everybody will agree with this objective truth. And that yeah. wouldn't be the case. And it's hard to say if there really is an objective truth when it comes to moral issues yeah moral and social issues and there really isn't so many things having to do with humans are complicated listen that's my hot take humans be complicated <laughs> oh my god <laughs> i can't believe you would say that this movie would have been way less interesting if they were like uh emus well i might take that back but... yeah i was gonna say i think we'd all really like that actually so much of the time Wonder when it, emu. When it comes <laughs> to moral or social 
truths, it can it so often is subjective. Right. And it's hard to say that anybody would just automatically agree with whatever truth the whip was showing them. <laughs> the Again, whip is the like most a unbelievable char- the most unbelievable part of the movie for me. Yeah, the whip is like a sentient character. Mm-hmm. I think in conclusion, right, we'll, we can glean that Wonder Woman's real power is having good vibes, <laughs> right? <laughs> and Wonder Woman is really telling you with the whip that this is all just evil bullshit. Just renounce it and your life is actually pretty good. And then you're like, you know what? My life is pretty good. And she's like, isn't that awesome? Yeah, it is awesome. I renounce my wish, right? Don't you feel good about that? I feel fucking fantastic, right? That's the real ending right there. Yeah. That's what happened. It's more like mental manipulation. Yes, Wonder Woman is just supposed to be like the avatar of can-do attitude and like... Hope. Having a good time and hope. Yeah, things like that. Hope and appreciation. hmm Yeah. You know, they, yeah, in her theme song back in the day, yeah, she can end a war with love, right? Her whole thing is turning war into peace and being a, you know, a bringer of good times. I mean, in in some regards, she does fulfill that role in this movie, like in the end. Exactly. Exactly. I just want to talk about one more thing with you guys before we move on to the next, next segment. I think that there is a part of the movie that exemplifies the issues I take with the film better than anything else. Okay. And it is the story of Asteria and her armor. Because oh, right. you know, we find out that Diana has this armor of Asteria. Asteria was the Amazon who like defended the line while all of her sisters were going to die. The other Amazons gave up their armor to craft Asteria this impenetrable shield and and bulwark against their foes, right? Yeah. And, like, for one, Diana just has the armor, like, in her office, like, waiting there, which is weird. But when she's finally ready to go fight Max and Cheetah, she dons this armor and has this epic entrance with these golden wings and everything. And then she's fighting Cheetah in it, and none of the metaphor or none of the built-up narrative about the history of this armor pays off. Cheetah just literally tears off the wings. Diana schluffs them off and then just fights in kind of cool-looking armor for the rest of the movie. It has no overlap with the experience of the story of the Amazons or anything like that. And that, to me, exemplifies this movie. It is like a bunch of lore built up and showy visual effects, but that can't pay off the message or the story that went into that narrative of the film. Yeah, it's true. They were kind of building up the armor as like the armor of the martyr, right? Yeah. Yeah. She sacrificed herself for her community. Exactly. So knowing that the messaging of, Diana putting on the armor means that you would expect her to be martyred after putting that on, right? Yeah. Like, it's like you're donning that to make a final stand. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. 
And that's not really what happens. Like, she and Cheetah are pretty evenly matched. And she has no reason to think that she won't be able to beat Cheetah because she doesn't even know at this point that Barbara has become more powerful. Right. And the lesson in the story about Asteria is that not only is it that she sacrificed herself to save her community... So the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few type of a message, but also that she knew that she was going to die, even though she had the armor, eventually they would overtake her because it's like all of the armies of the Mediterranean at the time are coming against them. And she basically offered herself up as a distraction so her sisters could get away and become refugees and find a new home so she knew that even though that armor was superhuman in strength and ability it wouldn't withstand the armies forever so here's the confounding part in the postscript we see that asteria actually did survive and is doing quite well but here's the thing i'm okay with it because we get a cameo from Linda Carter, television's Wonder Woman, which I thought was actually great. So yeah. I'm going to excuse it. But that is me excusing what I know is a misused narrative feature of the movie because I liked seeing Linda Carter in the movie. So basically, yeah, you're all right. Definitely. But all that being said... I think this means we're going to have a pretty good rewriting history next week. Totally. That's the most important upshoot. All right, well, this seems like the perfect time to head into the smithy. Welcome to the Smithy, where we forge a rating for this movie after we each share an epic moment or feature of the film. So, to kick it off, hey Chelsea, do you want to share your epic moment or feature from Wonder Woman 1984, and then tell us your rating between 1 and 10 lassos of truth? Sure. Or should it be invisible airplanes? <laughs> I like the lassos of truth. Okay. We didn't even talk about the invisible airplane scene. I know. You know, I'm going to share a problematic epic moment. <laughs> All right. Heck yeah. So, <laughs> there was an epic moment when Barbara is enjoying her newfound powers and she's running around jogging at night to indicate that she's feeling safer being out by herself and being out at night as a single woman, which makes a lot of sense for all you Ladies out there, female-bodied people out there, you know what I'm talking about. And... That was the power fantasy of this film, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, and she is harassed by a number of guys, but in one in particular who had been assaulting her on a previous evening when she was saved by Diana before Barbara got her powers. And he's harassing her again when she crosses his path. And this time she's got this power, so she confronts him. And she's been feeling more emboldened and confident. So 
he kind of starts to accost her again, and she pushes him off very easily, and she just says no. And each time he tries to control her, she just shouts no, and has the capability to make him listen to her. And that was a very powerful moment. But the problematic part of it is then she then beats him within an inch of his life, and I wouldn't condone that, so... And that is a part that is portrayed in the movie as a low point for the character as well. They're, they don't treat that as if it's something to be exemplified or anything like that. No, because her homeless friend Leon shows up and like basically is like, what are you doing? And then she like kind of has this moment of shame because yeah. she sees that she went too far. And she runs away. She says, mind your business, but then she runs away like she knows she did something wrong. Mm -hmm. But I, it it started out as a very empowering moment <laughs> before she took it too far. She's like a friend that doesn't know how far to go with a prank and always takes it one step too far. Oh, so she's like Chelsea. Yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna talk myself into whatever number is gonna come out of my mouth. So That's how we all do it sometimes. I was disappointed by this movie. I had high hopes, so that was probably my first mistake. I, uh, just generally speaking. For DC movies, you mean, generally speaking. Probably. I mean, I, I to be fair, the first Wonder Woman movie was really great. And I enjoyed it, and I felt like it had a lot of merit. But... This one falls really short. It felt like they just said it in the 80s to be pandering to what they think their audience might enjoy. There wasn't a lot of story reason to set this in the 80s, except for they, I guess, explained that they wanted it to be a commentary on the excesses of the 80s. But that wasn't very clear or prominent in the messaging or themes necessarily as being critical of it. It was more about the stone of truth. I mean, stone of lies. <laughs> Your stone of truth is actually a stone of lies. <laughs> so uh, I was really disappointed to find that there were a lot of scenes that I, just left me feeling bored. And that is one of the saddest things to happen in a Wonder Woman movie. And I enjoyed watching it with you guys and getting to talk about it while we watched and, and crack wise. Now, would you say that you were wondering where all the fun was? Yeah. But, so I guess I'm going to give it a three. That just popped Ooh, into my head. Damn. But I still recommend everybody sees it just once. Um, But there's a lot of scenes that just left me dumbfounded and feeling bored. But if you watch it with a group and you can kind of riff on it, it's it's fun to do that. All right. It doesn't have to be, you know, it can be virtually in a group like we do it. Sure. Whatever's safe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Jack, how about your epic moment or feature and your rating? From one to ten lassos of truth. And you have to tell the truth. I do have to tell the truth. I would not lie about something like this. Because the truth is objective. And the truth is good. An epic scene I want to give 
some more focus on is the one I kind of mentioned earlier where Diana is befriending Barbara by inviting her out to dinner. And she can tell that Barbara is kind of a lonely person as we see that Diana reveals herself to be over that meal. And Diana's explaining to Barbara how she actually wishes she was more like her because she's kind of like ditzy and but friendly and compassionate. And Wonder Woman has been closed off for 60 years. And she's basically saying, like, I wish I could be more free like you. Right. More of someone who hasn't been hurt as much, it seems like is what she's saying. And Barbara's like, what? No, I want to be like you. And I thought that was an interesting scene of two people have a lot of strengths and things to be thankful for, which is what the movie is kind of trying to convey. But they can only see what they want in the other person, right? Yeah. The grass is always greener on the other person. Right. But in that same way, they're bonding. They actually like each other a lot. And I thought that was sweet how... Wonder Woman is trying to make friends with someone who didn't have friends, and uh, they ended up getting along really well, uh, aside from, you know, magic, magic bad times. I kind of wish the whole movie had just been their buddy team up where everything goes right for their friendship. Yeah, well, you know, uh, Cheetah survives, so we'll see how that goes. And she's not even Cheetah at the end, so. Yeah, she returns to her Barbara form. Yeah, so looking forward <laughs> If they do something with that. I would like it if they stayed friends. Even at the end, Diana seemed to know that Barbara wasn't herself anymore. It's true. When she was, like, influenced by the evils of the Dreamstone. Yeah. Yes. And when it comes to the movie as a whole, I gotta say, I like the vibes they were going for. Truth and compassion are what wins the day, right? Yeah. An appreciation, a grounding wholesomeness, right? But there were a lot of scenes that didn't add anything to the story, like you were saying, Chelsea. Some of them were kind of boring, and a lot of them were just like, whoa, look how wacky this was. Look at the 80s. Wow, fireworks. Wow, I I have a different guy's face? Crazy, right? <laughs> Yeah. And check out these outfits. Exactly. And that that was kind of fun because in the first movie Diana was the fish out of water and then in the second one Chris Pine, I mean uh Steve is yeah. the fish out of water and she's showing him around and I was like, "Hey, that's a fun little put it on its head sort of thing." But yeah, again, so many scenes were not important. They didn't really contextualize the 80s. I think very well, which is what those scenes were meant to convey. And they didn't drive home much character complexity in those extra scenes or much plot complexity. It was kind of like there were 20 minute filler segments in your film. I could have made this as an episode of a TV show. <laughs> yeah. Maybe like a two-parter. Yeah, it was a lot of fun, though. I generally like, you know, people who have been listening to the show know that I like nightly characters. People who stand up for good morals, right? And I think Wonder Woman exemplifies that very well. Nightly with a K is what Jack is saying. Not like exactly. characters who just hang out at night. Yeah, exactly. But uh, Wonder Woman... She's like that, right? 
she's good vibes. She's uh, a good person and she fights for justice, right? And uh, so I can never be too upset at a Wonder Woman movie as long as it sticks to her character being like that. Enough delaying. I'm going to give this movie uh, a 5 out of 10 lassos of truth. Straight down the middle, there were parts of it that were good. There were parts of it that were kind of boring. But uh, Wonder Woman is good vibes. So, <laughs> fair. There you go. That's what fair. about you, Jamie? What is your epic moment and/or feature rating out of five lassos of truth? I mean, ten. <laughs> <laughs> well, gee, Jack, I'm glad you asked. Um, I think that my epic feature is just gonna be Chris Pine. He and yes. I. I feel like the character did not need to be brought back. Yeah. But since they did. Since he's there. Since he's there, I'm going to enjoy him, right? Mm-hmm. He brought a fun energy that I thought really fit in. Like, what is it? Are they at the Smithsonian when he's like looking at all the modern art and then. No, he, like, they're at the Hirshhorn Museum. The Hirshhorn. Thank you. And he sees the trash can and Diana's just like, it's just a trash can. And he's just like, wow, like <laughs> the energy yeah. and the fun he brought to it. I really enjoyed. And, you know, Steve, what do we know about Steve? The guy's a pilot. He loves him a plane. When he goes into the aeronautical museum or to the air and space museum and sees the planes and sees the airplanes, he looks like a little kid who loves airplanes seeing airplanes for the first time and gosh darn it he's just so fucking charming (laughs) and it like when he gets to fly the jet i felt so good for him in that moment i think that was the most feel-good moment of the movie for me and i don't give a fuck about planes Yeah. But he sold it so well. I was like, oh, but he's just so happy to be, like, in the cockpit again. Good for him. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, he does have some of the best moments when they're getting off the runway, and she's like, "Uh uh-oh, they don't like that we're leaving you. He's like, are they going to shoot at us? And she's like, maybe. And he goes, well, shit, Diane. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he really, like, he really added something to the movie. So, plot-wise... I think completely unnecessary to bring Steve back. It would have been better to not. But since that's what we got, I'll take a Chris Pine fashion show in every movie. Thank you very much. Yeah, I mean, just to your point real quick, if they hadn't brought him back and Diana had gotten some other wish or something, maybe to find love in her life, she could have found it in an unexpected way, like love through friendship. And she and Barbara could have become closer, and then that we could have gotten more of their friendship. But if she wished for that, then it would have gone bad, and she would have had to have renounced that friendship. I don't want her to renounce her friendship. Oh, that's a good point. That's sad. No. And I just want to say, I am not a early Chris Pine adapter. I was not a big fan of him early on from like Star Wars, or sorry, from Star Trek and stuff. I don't really enjoy the J.J. from Star Trek movies. So I was never a fan of Chris Pine's until these movies. And now I think he's just fine. <laughs> what was your number? I haven't given one yet. Oh. But thanks for asking. I think I'm going to agree with Chelsea and give this movie three lassos of truth it was mostly disappointing after um the original wonder woman being probably my favorite of the dc movies until maybe shazam and i probably still well 
I don't know. Anyways, I had also high hopes for this film. Yeah. I felt that, unfortunately, it was paced poorly. It was narratively uneven. It was way overly long. This yeah. is a two and a half hour movie. And there's so much that I'm like, you could have left that on the cutting room floor. This doesn't add anything. This doesn't carry the plot in any way. Just so many missed opportunities with a few shining moments. But I think three is probably the number I've got to go with. Three yeah. lassos of truth. Makes sense. And I can't lie because this golden thread is wrapped around my ankle. <laughs> yeah. Well, that pretty much does it for us here. Uh, we hope that you enjoyed this episode of Swords and Satire. If you did, maybe jump on to iTunes and give us a review so that other people can learn about our show. If you enjoyed the show and you listened to it for the first time or you're a follower of our show and you haven't jumped over to Patreon yet, if you have the means, why don't you head over there and check out our account on patreon.com slash swords and satire uh, and consider joining our community of patrons. We give bonus content every month to our patrons, voting privileges on the movies that we watch each month, and special episodes. And if you want to become more a part of the Swords and Satire community, look us up on social media. Social media? How do you find us on social media? At Swords and Satire on Facebook and Twitter. And if you want to get your friends into it too, share the show with some people you think might be interested. If they tell someone and then that person tells someone, we'll be expanding the community in no time. It's like a pyramid <laughs> scheme of fun. <laughs> But until next time, Hail, Hail Crom! Crom.